0: from Boca Raton, Florida. This is Behind the Bema. On this episode, the Rabbis are joined by Rabbi Benji Levine, Rav of Achtu Israel Synagogue and former Educational Director at Gesher. Rabbi Levine discusses his work bridging the gap between religious and secular Jews and shares stories about his illustrious family, including his relationship with Uncle Rabbi Yashiv and living with the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, his grandfather, Rav Levin. Levine. Also, the Rabbis discuss and process the tragedy in Mehron. All this and more Behind the Bima.
1: Good evening. It's nine, nine o'clock and I'm your host, Rabbi from Gober, joined by my dear friends, Philip Feldmaskowitz and Rabbi Josh Brody, and we're here to take you Behind the Bima. Behind the beam. let's begin by thanking our sponsor. And really excited about our new sponsor, the Glass family of T-Neck, owners of Moratech Industries, and they've launched a brand new brand, which I'm excited about because I personally can benefit from this. It's called Good Raise. It is uh, spelled G O O D R A Z, and you can check it out at GoodRaise.com. G O O D R-A-Z.com. Why am I excited about this? Because I take vitamin D every day. I got to take three pills. I take 3,000 milligrams of vitamin D a day. Apparently, it's very good for you in Corona, and I guess I don't get enough sun. I'm not sure why I need that. So here, they create these drops, and it's amazing because you could put a drop in your coffee, your water, your tea, your cereal, your yogurt, and, and you're done. Each drop is 1,000 milligrams. You get your vitamin D. It's a no-brainer, little bottle. You don't have to go to the pharmacy. You're not constantly don't replacing pills. You don't, don't have, to have to swallow them. You just you just put the drops in. You won't even taste it. Amazing. Good Raise, and you could check it out. You could order online at Good Raise or Amazon or a lot of other places. G-O-O-D-R-A-Z.com. G-O-O-D-R-A-Z.com. Very grateful to the Glass family of T-Neck. Thank you for sponsorship, and thank you for listening gentlemen it's been a a very tough week very tough week week. i don't think last wednesday night when we met we would have dreamt in a million years that the very next night lagba omer celebrations around the world of course the central celebration Meron, thousands of jews and to think that the tragedy the casualties the loss of life the impact the devastation the catastrophe it's just it's just tremendously tremendously painful and we're all still reeling, Jewish people around the world. This has transcended our differences. It's made us feel united. The stories of, uh, you know, religious, non-religious, donating blood, feeling connected, feeling together. I was just uh, listening to Ravasha Weiss who made such a powerful point. He said, you know, in America, you hear about another mass shooting. And unfortunately, there have been no shortage of these mass shootings. They're terrible. Something must be done. I don't know how to address it. But it's, it's terrible, terrible, devastating, a scary world that we live in. And when you hear, when you see, of course, your heart skips a beat. Of course, if you're a feeling person, you have sympathy, you have empathy. But you don't feel that a member of your family has been killed, right? United States of America, hundreds of millions of people. We're proud, patriotic Americans. We're connected. We're, we're loyal. But you don't feel one of your own, so to say. But in Israel, Aside from our community's connection to Donnie Morris, all of Hashalom, but the other 44, all 45 victims, it's a cousin. It's a brother-in-law it's a nephew it's an uncle the jewish people were one and um and and we've seen that the outpouring of, of unity and love if only we could bottle that and and continue that so i don't know some impressions that you have on on what this week has been like what how you're dealing with this with this pain do you find yourself distracted are you sleeping well are you picturing how how they might have suffered or or what we can learn from this where, where is your attention
2: so i mean again uh, I, with everything you just said And uh, it's been absolutely horrific um, on so many levels. And I think that's what's been most striking to it is the layers of tragedy that are built upon tragedy that are built upon tragedy. And I think so many of us are grappling through it. Friday for me was just a big days. Um, It felt that entire day of Friday there was just a cloud hanging over every interaction I had. Um, It was a real challenge to be with my kids who obviously weren't able to fully grasp and understand what was going on. And they expect, you know, smiley, happy dad. And obviously that was not the case on Friday. And that was a very big challenge for me personally. And I don't remember a time coming into Shabbos in Shul, in BRS, where there was just more of a cloud hanging over davening. People questioning Hashem. How could Hashem have? And again, we're believers. and But I think people were legitimately struggling. And I don't remember a time when as a community, more people struggled in such a, Palpable way um, with Amuna issues with bitachon. How could Hashem do this? How could Hashem allow this to happen? Sadik varalo, varash Vitovlo. I don't remember a Shabbos like this in a very, very long time.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, for us, it, it really clo- hit close to home. Uh, for all Jews, it hit close to home. For all good people, um, but. Donnie Morris's grandparents live in our community, and one of the hardest things we've ever had to do. Rabbi Moskowitz and I went over on Friday after they were looking and searching and we understood what was happening from other sources and were asked to go over and be with uh, Donnie's grandparents who are members of our shul, to be with them and, and frankly to tell them um, while family members were on the phone, a very painful, very, very difficult, impossible thing. It's a parent and a grandparent's absolute worst nightmare. And this isn't an illness that takes time, one prepares themselves um not that that's any better but but You know, the the last picture that Donnie sent was a selfie at Mayron, the biggest smile on his face, which apparently he had all the time, and that's the image, that joy, the family had all seen it and said, oh, he's having the best time, and then you go from he's having the best time, we're so proud, we're so happy for him, that smile, it's just an impossible thing to believe in. So this is, you know, it's impacted all of us on a a lot of levels. Um, My daughter was in Mayrone that night, and thank God it didn't affect her, it didn't affect anyone in the women's section, Um, but it was scary, and it's definitely etched in her mind and memory for ever. The sirens, the stretchers, the emergency, the casualties, the scene. Um, We did, Rabbi Moskowitz and I did uh, two Zooms, one with uh, um, girls in Israel in seminary, one with guys in yeshiva we did yesterday. And um, just an opportunity for them to schmooze, to talk, to share. For us to try to give some chizak. There were very powerful things that came out on the girls' Zoom. One of the girls said, "You know, I'm dealing with it. For me, it's challenging. But could you give me guidance on how to talk to my friends?" I don't know whether she had friends in Shalvim or whether she just mean my friends who were in me. Meir- she was at Meron. She left before this happened. She had friends who were there, weren't obviously. Again, the girls were not directly affected. But you know, if you're on the scene of a terror event, even if you're not. Um, at risk you're still very traumatized by it and she was looking for some guidance on on how do you support a friend and the guys was really an impossible question some boys in Shalvim asked they said you know we're in the base measures and we're struggling to concentrate when we learn because we know the best thing we could do for Donnie is to learn in his memory but in we sit in that base measure all we do is look at his empty muckum the place he used to sit his farm are set up that was his place that's where he sat and now it's just empty so how do you tell 17, 18-year-old kids, 16-year-old kids, the year in Israel, their life ahead of them, you know, they feel uh, immortal, and they're looking over at an empty spot of a friend. These are things they shouldn't be dealing with at that age.
0: I, think no, it's I was blown away. Sorry, yeah. No, it's just interesting to think that there's a lot of people out there that don't understand what Morone is and, and why it's so significant, why there's so many people that gather. I remember reading an article last week from Rabbi New in our community who tried to describe it for people that just haven't experienced it or probably never will experience it, but why it's such an important moment for people to be able to go there and, and 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 see it. But just your words that you said this past week, I guess it was in your Drusha when you spoke, I think it was about your daughter was very, you know, left a big impact on me, where you said at, I guess at the moment, they were all singing An Imam and, and the feeling was that Mashiach was imminent. Like he, you right. could feel he was about to come and then just moments later when the tragedy, happened you never felt more distant
1: exactly exactly yeah that contrast
0: i was
2: just gonna add that i was um i was actually i was impressed and proud by the thoughtfulness of so many of the questions that we got yesterday when we were talking to the to the young men and the young women in our community and they're concerned for other people they're concerned for their own spiritual growth the questions they had the way they were grappling with it and um, again i was i was enormously almost proud of the way that they were processing things, how they were seeking advice and guidance and looking to people with uh, with more life experience for a little bit of uh, chizuk and answers were possible. But, uh, but it was very, I was, I was proud to w- listen to them and to hear their questions and to hear how they're thinking things through. And I thought it was a great sign of maturity for them. As you said, no 17, 18 year old should be going through this and they were thrust into this chaotic experience. And uh, you know to see them rise to the occasion and really grapple with it, with the maturity was uh, was was a great source of pride for our community.
1: The future the future is bright. I agree with that assessment. I'll, I'll leave uh, you because I want to move over to our guest. We have a very special guest and so much to talk to him about tonight. And he's a perfect guest who can. Help us, offer us comfort and strength. He comes from a legacy of Ravali Levin, his legacy of of loving all Jews, of Jewish unity. It's it's what we need in in reaction and hopefully in in comfort from this. But you know, going behind the bima for a moment, um, two things. I gave that drasha on Shabbos, and and it really came from from my heart. I was sharing my own struggles and and questions and how to channel it and where we can go with it. Um, I gave it, we have many minyanim on a Shabbos morning, I had given it in one minyan and, and was very emotional while giving it. And then there was a bar mitzvah, a very exciting, very happy, uh, wonderful simcha at another minyan. And as a rabbi, as a Rav, it's very conflicting. On the one hand, you have a packed crowd, by packed I mean socially distanced, but packed, that there are a lot of people there. And you say to yourself, to not talk about this, you can't, people come to shul, they're looking to make sense to say something, give me some strength. So to not talk about it is a disservice. On the other hand, it's a simcha, a bar mitzvah, family fluid, and you're going to throw candies, you're going to sing Simitav and Mazel Tov, and you're going to talk about 45 people who are who are tragically, tragically died in a catastrophe. So that's, you know, some of the thinking that I'm very lucky to, to have colleagues who, right beforehand, I could talk it out and say, do I go to another drusha for this minion? Do I go to a backup, hit the files for this minion? Do I talk about this? How do I link it to the bar mitzvah? What do we do but... That's a little behind the beam of the other thing in in thinking on. I
2: just respond to that. Just yeah, quickly. sure. You, you did, again, having been there and a participant, I think Rabbi Brody would agree, you 100% made, made the right decision. I think it's really what people needed to hear at that moment in time, and you gave people who were really questioning, questioning in ways that, I've again, I don't remember in, in recent memory, and you gave people a lot of chizek, so you made the right decision. I
1: appreciate that. You know, I tried, I and I hope I did, and I hope the bar mitzvah family understands I hope it only enhanced and didn't take away but the second question as I was speaking was the kids in the room there there it's a bar mitzvah so all 13 year olds all the friends are there but there's 12 and 11 and 10 and 7 year olds in the room and you're up there and on the one hand as a speaker you are tugging on the heartstrings and you're having people open up their heart by talking about what it meant that 45 people were, were, were trampled to death a catastrophe what that meant that they lost their life so young On the other hand, you don't want to give nightmares to a seven-year-old, an eleven-year-old. A kid comes to Shul and sits next to their, a child comes to Shul and sits next to their parent, and the child, the parent, is the parent entitled to assume that the child is going to not be exposed to something at Shul that will give them nightmares? That the rabbi is not going to give a speech that's going to make the kid go home, the child go home and say, I'm scared. What if it happens to me? I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to go to an event. I don't want to go to. So that's another. Again, it's, a, it's just a behind the bima kind of just sharing. There's not easy answers, but just sharing some of the thought process of trying to figure it out and make sense of how do you address issues of the day in a meaningful and direct way, but also recognizing and respectful that you have different diverse ages in the room, that you have simcha, that you have a lot of things that need to be yeah. that need to be balanced. So it's a lot. But we're very. I'll
2: just say add an example to that. So. When listening to the Levaya on Sunday, I had a very similar experience. I mean, two hours straight of just crying your eyes out. And in the middle of that, we had a bat mitzvah. I had to go to an upsherin, and it was it was really challenging as a rabbi. We talked in the past about compartmentalizing. Then the we went to a life. wedding
1: from there. Yeah. And we
2: went to a wedding from there, and just, okay, I'm like watching a levaya, I'm cutting out in the middle, I'm running to an upsherin to wish mazel tov, going to a bat mitzvah to wish mazel tov, I'm gonna go to a wedding later tonight and it it was very challenging day emotionally it's a lot of gears
1: you're constantly switching gears and and you want to be authentic so it's not we we're authentic although compartmentalized that's the that's the challenge. So we are super, super excited. We have uh, an amazing guest tonight. Uh, he's been to our community. He's become a friend of, of my family. My father actually grew up in his father's shul, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, Rav Benji Levin, the grandson of the great Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, Rav Aria Levin. He's a Yeshiva University graduate and has a smicha from the Chief Revenant of Israel. He was an advisor to the Chairman of the Aliyah Department, the Jewish Agency for Israel, Educational Director, the great Gesher. We'll talk to him about that. He's often a scholar in residence. He's the Rav of the Achdut Yisrael, In Yerushalayim, very special shul. I hope we're going to ask him about that as well. Just an all-around amazing, amazing person. And I was curious when I first heard of him and met him, and and we'll get into it, I'm sure our audience is, how did Rav Aya Levin's grandson end up at Yeshiva University? How did Rebbe Yoshev's nephew, how did and Kanievsky's first cousin end up speaking English growing up in New Jersey and end up at YU? How does that make sense? So, very excited to talk about that. Without any further ado, it's our great pleasure to welcome on Rabbi Benji Levine. We are so honored and privileged to be joined by a dear friend, Rabbi Benji Levine. Rabbi Benji has been to our community in Boca Raton, he's hosted children from our community, my own children, and is an extraordinary special person and we're so, so excited particularly on the behind the bimah that is before Yom Yerushalayim, to be able to welcome one of the tzaddikim of Yerushalayim, uh, who takes after only his grandfather and other illustrious members of his family. Rabenji, thanks so much for making time and for being with us.
3: An honor for me to be with you.
1: So we have so much to talk about. Obviously, uh, your grandfather, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, Rav Ari Levin, what it was like to, to be in his home, what it was like to spend time with him, the messages, his legacy. Your uncle, Rav Zatsal Zatzal, what it meant to be the nephew of Agarul Ador or Nukola Tarakula, your first cousin, Rebitsin Kaniewski, Zechrona Levracha, her special quality, what made her unique. There's so much to talk about in your own illustrious history. But I want to begin by talking about one of the most special members of your family, and that is you. Tell us a little bit about the amazing work that we know that you've done. The history that you grew up in America, your father was a, a rav in, in, in Newark, Menachem Begin's Where's visits to your home. We'll we'll get to all that in Jersey City, of course, where where my father grew up and attended that shul. No, we'll get to him. all of that. You remember him from I, his youth. Want to yeah. hear all of that? But let's start with what you're doing now. Today you are the rav of the Achdus Yisrael shul one of the most uh, special shuls in Yerushalayim with an amazing history, a trapdoor for guns, the Etzel al fighters, the work that you've done in Gesher, trying to bridge the gap between the religious and secular. Let's begin. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, what you're dedicated to and, and your extraordinary life.
3: Well, what I'm doing right now is um, I, I spent over 40 years working with Gesher, uh, traveling around the country, um, running seminars, working in schools, trying to bridge the gap between the religious and the secular, which is a, um, a very, very difficult problem in Israel because Israel is a Jewish country. In America or England, wherever, you can belong to any sect, do whatever you want. You don't have to be affiliated to, to anything uh, if you don't want to. And in, But in Yerushalayim, in Israel, living in Israel because it's a Jewish state, the question is, what does that mean, being in a Jewish state, and where do I fit in? And, and one of the very, very uh, great problems in Israel is the problem between the religious and the secular. When they um, uh, proclaimed the state of Israel, and they sat down and decided, tried to decide together, what kind of a state is this going to be? Is it going to be a religious state? And the secular said, of course not. And they said, it's going to be a secular state. And the religious said, of course not. And and they went back and forth and worked out a kind of way to live together. And that is, and there were things like Shabbat would be the official day of rest. And so uh, buses wouldn't go on Shabbat, but cars, private cars could drive on Shabbat. So the religious said that it's a day of rest, a national day of rest, cars shouldn't drive. The secular said, uh, what do you mean? Why should I pay more money for uh, a taxi, or, or for a th- why? Why can I take a bus in America and everywhere else on Sunday? And that buses run or whatever. So they worked out a way of living together, which um, through the years has caused problems here and there. Also because of the politics, if there are more seats in one party, they have they can try and pass laws against the other, and it always causes a rift. It's a rift that that. Until today, they have never really been able to figure out how do you live together in a Jewish state, religious and secular people. But uh, with all the problems, it it does work. It works with problems. Um, And uh, for many, many years, I dedicated my life to traveling around the country, working with religious and secular schools, uh, bringing them together, religious and secular kids, trying to find a way where we could live together and not necessarily agree with one another, but at least respect each other's positions. And it was very—it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, uh, I had a show I did called The Four Faces of Israel that I was able to do all over the world that was, was very funny, but it broke down a lot of the stereotypes of how uh, each one looked at the other person and, um, and gave me a tremendous fulfillment in, in also being able to meet thousands of people throughout the country of all different ty- uh, types and different walks of life and uh, being in certain ways and address for them when they wanted to talk about what is their Jewish identity.
1: People don't know that Gesher is actually responsible for the show Sh'tisel, that Sh'tisel began not as a for-profit enterprise, but Gesher, this nonprofit, wanted to give a insight, a window into the world of Hasidim in Yerushalayim that... In in their lives, there's a lot that people face, in the, the day-to-day drama of marriage and parenting and the like is similar across worlds. So Stiesel itself is a product of Gesher. Could you? I don't know if you had anything to do with uh, Stiesel when you were with uh, Gesher. No,
3: I personally didn't, no. But it's a wonderful, wonderful show, and it it took the country by storm, really.
1: It did, it did create that, that window. Can you talk to us about that shul, that your grandfather's shul, that you're privileged to now serve the Rav of Achtes Yisrael? Tell us some of its features and in whose memory was it founded or the original founders of it and, and what continues to happen there today.
3: Well, I just want to give you a little background of where I come from and how I get to this shul Bechlau. Uh, my father, Rav Ham Yaakov, who was one of the gedolim, the greats of Jerusalem, as a young boy, he was considered one of the great Talmudic scholars. He, uh, he'd written a book on the Rambam at a very young age. He was very close to Rav Kook and many of the greats in Yerushalayim, Rav Sazalman Meltzer. Uh, and my grandfather sent him to Poland to learn by Rav Baruch Baer and the great Communist Yeshiva. My father's Chavrusa in Jerusalem was Rav Shlomo Zalman Oyabach. And they grew up together. And Rav Shlomo Zalman told me when he came to uh, to pay a shiva call when my father passed away, he was crying. And he said, Dein Tat is gewesen von der Your father was one of the greatest. He was greater than all of us. And uh, my father, as a young boy, all Yerushalayim hit Pa'arubo. They talked about him. And what happened was that um, my mother came from London. Her father was a in London, and was w- in contact with my grandfather, Rebaria, in Jerusalem. They wrote to each other. And uh, my mother wanted to come to Israel. My father had just come back from Poland and they were married and, and lived two years in Yerushalayim. And then my grandfather, said to my father, Take your wife to see her family. She hasn't been home for uh, a couple of years. So they went to London and visiting London was Rabmeah Berlin, the son of the Nitziv, uh, Bari Lan, right? Rabmeah Bari Lan. He was the head of Mizrahi, World Mizrahi. And interesting enough, he used to test the boys in the great Chaim Yeshiva near the Shuk of Machne Yehuda. And uh, he knew of my father, and he remembered my father because he had tested him when my father was a young boy. And when he saw my father, all of a sudden in England, Rameh Berlin Barilan was speaking in England for World Mizrahi. He said to my father, what are you doing here? And my father told him, my wife is from London. Her father is a Rav in the east end of London the Great Jubilee Street Synagogue, and we came for a visit. So Rameer Berlin said, well, I want to send you for a few months to America, la fitz torat er tisrael, to, to give shiurim, people should know about you. And my mother said to my father, it's a great idea. I'm not in the street. I'm in my parents' home. Go to America for a month or two. You'll meet the, the ju- 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 American Jewry and the Gedolim there, the Rabbanim there. And then you'll come back to london we'll go back to eretz yisrael and uh, my father went to america and while he was in america world war ii broke out and for two years my parents were separated my mother was stuck in england during the blitz she was evacuated to a small little town called Sirencester. my uh, father was stuck in america in order to stay he had to get it was sort of like a green card whatever but in order to get that you had to travel outside of america to an american embassy and then come back in. He was advised to go to Canada. He crossed back into Seattle, and he started a yeshiva in Seattle, Al-Shem Reb Chaim Oizer. And uh, many of these young boys who went to public school in the morning, afterwards became very big Tamir Chachamim, studying in this yeshiva that my father made in Seattle. He also became the rabbi because Rabbi Volga Linter was busy with overseas. He was working for the Atsala, and my father became the rabbi there. Two years later, my mother came over, and my father was in Seattle for 12 years. And then I was born there in 47, and in 49, Rabbi Henkin, who was then the Pesach in New York before Rabbi Moshe, loved my father, and he brought him to Jersey City. Uh, the rab there had passed away around Bluff. It was a beautiful shul. And my father became the rabbi in Jersey City in 1949 till 1969. And um, I grew up basically in Jersey City, New Jersey. But in the summers, they would send me to Eretz Yisrael a number of times to live with my grandfather, and and that was an unbelievable experience. Can I just uh, ask you a
1: question? Go when, ahead. When your, fa- when your father first came to America, Rav Meir Berlin, Rav Meir Barilan sent him. Was that under the auspices of Mizrahi, or was that Rav Meir Barilan saw his greatness and thought it would be good for him to come to America?
3: I, I I I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. It's a good question. I know that he was instrumental. My, my zayde rabbiya had learned by the Netziv, and Reb Berlin. It's interesting. The Netziv had two sons who were like about fifty years apart. Reb Chaim Berlin, who was the chief rabbi of Moscow, and then became the chief rabbi of And my grandfather told me, Lomash yadi mi yado. My hand never left his." So my grandfather rabbiya learned by the Netziv in Valozhen. And was very close to his son, Reb Chaim Berlin, who was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. Reb Meir Berlin was born like 50 years, because when the netziv was an old man, his wife passed away, and he married a younger woman. And so there were two brothers who were many years apart, very, very different. And um, uh, Reb Chaim was the, was the, the, the Rav Rashi of Yerushalayim. Reb Meir was the head of world Mizrahi, a goddel in his own right. In fact, I'll tell you an interesting story. Reb, Reb uh, Shlomo Zalman told me that when Reb, Cha- Reb Mayer Berlin once came in to uh, to give a a, a, um, a a test, the bechina in the yeshiva in its time, the kids, my father and Reb Shlomo Zalman were then about nine, ten years old, and he asked the question, Reb uh, Mayer Berlin, who can give me all the machlokesin in, in bava Metzia between Reb Meir and Reb Yehuda? He said, and told me, he said, your father got up. He pointed to your father, your father got up, and he went through the entire Mesahda, he went through all the machlekasin. So wow. after Riflem told me this story, I came back and told it to my father. And my father laughed and he said to me, And you know why he asked who can name all the machlakasin between Reb Reb Yehuda and Reb Meir? I said, Why? He said, Because his father was Rabbi Yudha, the native, and he was the mayor. <laughs> yeah, that's great.
2: That's great. But,
3: um, uh, so I always say that I, I speak English. People say to me, how is it that Rabbi Levine's grandson talks with an American accent? I say, because of Barilan." Wow. Lan. <laughs> because I didn't know bar but Reb Yudha Berlin, Bari Lan was the that's one that great. sent my father to America and why we wound up in America.
2: So you have They're- us on the edge of your seats. You're a... Uh- Teenager in America, you go to your grandfather in Israel for the summers. I'm teenager, What's
3: that like? A, Yan- a Yankee fan. I'm growing up in the house of my father, who's a guttle in his own right. I mean, my grandfather used to stand up for my father. He said, Beni and um, I'm sent to Yerushalayim. And uh, it's just an amazing experience because it's before the Six Day War, it's Mamish, the early 1960s. And that's after my Bar Mitzvah, 61, 62. And Yerushalayim is very, very small, very, very primitive. Um, And I come into, uh, I I come for the first time to see my grandfather who I've heard so much about who has sent me letters in his special unique handwriting. And um, I even remember that first experience because there, there was something very unusual about it. I come in, my brothers were there and I walked in and my brother said, Binyamin is here. And my grandfather saw me in his little room, and he made a shechiyonu, with the Shem. And he said, shechiyonu? And then he ran and he hugged me. And then he turned to my brothers, and he said what Yosef said when they brought Binyamin uh, uh, to Mitzrayim. He said, mm-hmm. Is this your young brother that you that you told me about? And I concluded the sentence. <laughs> and the reason I concluded the sentence was because my father, I said to my father, I said, I said, Abba, Daddy, what is Rabai going to say when I first come? My father thought for a minute, my father was brilliant. He said, I'll probably say to your brothers, <laughs> So I know the rest of the Pasik, <laughs> So I said, yoch And which made my grandfather's face light up. And every time my grandfather would write me, he would write to me, Bin enke, which is the bracha of Chain. And I believe ad hayom, that any success I've had in my life has come from that bracha that my grandfather gave me when I first met him in his little room in Yerushalayim. It
1: must have been an amazing culture shock, this American Yankee, I'd grown up in Jersey City, and, and as I said, you know, my father has incredible memories of that shul and of your father's greatness. And uh, what a culture shock, American English speaker, to go into the heart of Yerushalayim, the shoe of Ravaria Levin, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim. I can imagine the pressure on you to be Ravaria Levin's grandson, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim's grandson, the pressure to be the son of your father, and the culture shock. What was that like when you first came to Yerushalayim?
3: Well, it was. All my life, it's been tremendous pressure, but it taught me one very important thing, how to relate to people who come from families that are very well known, how to mityaches to their children, because I understood exactly what they had to go through. But in a way, though it was a culture shock, it wasn't such a culture shock because I spoke Yiddish. My parents' first language, my mother came from London, her father was a rub there, of the Chofetz Chaim. My mother spoke a fluent Litvish Yiddish and the Queen's English. She sounded like the Queen when she spoke. We have tapes of her. And my father spoke Yiddish and Hebrew, so my parents' first language was Yiddish. And I grew up in a house of Litvish Yiddish. And so um, I'm so grateful for that because I was able to speak to my grandfather. My grandfather learned with me every day. But... um, but I came from a house in Jersey City. We had a beautiful house that the shul gave us to this little tiny room in in, um, in, in, in Yerushalayim. And uh, I'll just tell you, like in the morning, my grandfather would get up very early and he would go to Davin Zahare Chama, which is a shul opposite the shul Kamachne Yehuda that has a big sun dial on it. Yeah. <clears throat> and there there was a minyad vasikin. What's interesting is, and I always talk about how people were, were much more normal there from a were very normal because my grandfather would go to and He would get up about 5.30 and uh, I would watch everything he did because I figured to myself, I'm going to watch. I have an opportunity to live with the tzaddik of Yerushalayim. I'm going to watch everything he does. And I wrote it down and everything. I said, and then I'm going to go back to America to my yeshiva and I'm going to do the same things I saw my grandfather do. And when when my rebbe said to me, why are you doing that? I'll say, that's what Sadiqim do. (laughs) But there was nothing to copy because everything my grandfather did was so normal and so easy. He didn't daven longer than other people or shorter or whatever. It was just very gloss and very, very easy. How did he wake me up in the morning? He didn't say to me, get up, you have to daven. An American kid, you know, like he got up at 5.30 and that he didn't. He didn't wake me when he went to shul. When he came back later on, about eight o'clock, then he woke me. And how did he wake me? He would say to me, b-n-yom-in-ke, b-n-yom-in-ke. When David met by in Jersey City in America. When did they it in your father's shul in Jersey City in America?" And I would say, Zeda aru Machta zega." About eight o'clock. So he would say to me in Yiddish. If you run now, you can still make it. <laughs> so I would get dressed very quickly. I would run to one of the shuls in the center of Uchileim because <clears throat> I do a tour there, actually, in that whole area that I, I remember as a kid so well and the characters there. And um, I would dive into one of the shuls, come back to him. He wanted to make me breakfast. So he would send me up to my aunt who lived in the upstairs <clears throat> to get some eggs and to get some shemin zayat some olive oil now he didn't have a stove he had a Primus a Primus is like a camping stove it was all on kerosene uh, heating light uh, all these things cooking was on kerosene so he would i would bring back these eggs and shemin zayat and he had a frying pan that i was sure they used in the base Hamikdash. it was <laughs> the mother of all antiques and he would take the Shemin olive oil, and he would fill up the pan. And I was starting to break out. So I said, "Zede genug, genug. <laughs> it, it's enough olive oil. And he would say, nein nein se gesund. It's very, very healthy. Now, then he showed me how to light this primus. It was like a camping stove that everybody used. They didn't have stoves. So uh, you would take, um, there was like blue alcohol. And, and you would you would pour some on the top and light it. And then when it got very hot, there was a little pump on the bottom and you would pump the bottom and the kerosene would move up. And when it hit the fire, it would go. And that's what you cooked on, right? It was like a fast cooker. And um, so he would make me an egg and this was already in the, the middle of the summer. He still had matzahs left over from Pesach. So he gave me matzahs with an egg that he made me full of olive oil. It was the most delicious breakfast I've ever eaten. I've eaten in a lot of places in the world. This was the best breakfast I ever had. And then he would learn with me for a few hours. And it was always with stories, interesting. It it, it was like I, I couldn't wait for more because it wasn't like being in class or being tested. It was like it was so easy, nice, together with stories from his own life, whatever. And then about 12 o'clock, he would send me to Hechoshlomo, Shlomo, which was the seat of the rabbinate. And he would send me there to wait for my uncle, Rav Eliyoshif, who was the head of the best in, and walk him home to his house in Meir Sharem. You have to understand that um, the Heichel Shlomo was the seat of, the, of religious Zionism. And uh, Rav Eli Yoshev uh, there was a brisker, a ban, a, a cheirim against going into Heichel Shlomo because it was part of the uh, the religious Zionists. And Rav Eli Yoshev had his office in Heichel Shlomo. He was the head of the bestin, and I would wait for him there, and I would walk him home to Meir Sha'arv. Uh, there are many, many experiences of the summer of, of wow. going every Shabbos to Rav Eli Yoshev and being with him. He would sing Zemiras. He was very very nice he was um i loved to go there
1: well what was it did you realize at the time um not only your grandfather's greatness in Sidko's and of course in learning but your uncle did you know that Rav Yoshev was on the track to be the undisputed gadol That that's encyclopedic knowledge that he was respected around the world
3: but um i my, i knew of him and everything but i but it was very interesting because Rav Yoshev held so much from my father that in the letters that he writes to my father, he writes the biggest titles of all. So it, it wasn't. Even though I grew up in Jersey City on a street with mostly non-Jews and played ball with them, um, you know, and I knew all of them. Street. It was. It was. It was. In many ways, you would say it was a tremendous culture shock. It was, but in many ways it wasn't because in the house that I grew up in, it was Yerushalayim in Jersey City. That's the house we grew up in. But, but it was also growing up, of course, in Jersey City and uh, coming to Yerushalayim in, in many ways, even though it was like at that time you would, people would call it a third world country because it was very primitive uh, and it didn't have until after the Six Day War when it started to change. But it was, um, I loved it. I just loved it. I loved the way it was. I loved, you know, I loved being with my grandfather. We couldn't go to the old city on Tisha B'av, we went up to Sion, and you could look from Herzliyon, and you could see the Jordanians with their guns standing opposite you from a distance. And Yerushalayim was very, very bottleneck. It was very, very small, but there was something about the 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 avirah of Yerushalayim of, of in those days. It was still still the early days of of, of Eretz of the Medina. And there was a feeling in the country that was was special. It was something very unique.
1: Now you mentioned was your the Rav of the time. What's that? Your grandfather was the Rav of the time. We wanted to get back to the oh the shul. From...
3: Okay, so my grandfather was the Rav of this shul called Doctor Yisrael, which started even before the beginning of the state. It started actually on Rav Cook Street, and then it moved over to this little Midcham, right off of Chov Yafo behind Binyan Klal. <clears throat> and the people who were members of that shul were people who were sent to Africa <clears throat> by the British, people who fought in the underground, in the Eitzel, the Lehi, the, the Irgun, the freedom fighters. And um, in '48, when they proclaimed the state, then uh, they, a number of these people who were sent to Africa came back from Kenya and other places where the British sent them. And uh, like the people like Nachembegin would come in there from time to time to Daven uh, Ruby Rivlin, who is the, uh, the, today the president of Israel, still has his seat in the middle of the shul, the, in the first row, it says Reuven Rivlin, and um, uh, many of the, uh, the real heroes of the underground in that daven in that shul in, in Yerushalayim, and I would sit next to my grandfather, I mean, it was, um, it, it was, it was a wild experience for me, you know, I, I saw the way all these people, they were these guys were really tough fighters, And uh, I saw the love and respect that they had for my grandfather. It was amazing.
2: Now, you mentioned Yushalayim, and uh, you had mentioned to us previously that you had the great privilege of being with your grandfather in Yushalayim after the sixty-seven war and being able to escort him to the Kotel.
3: Um, Can you share that story with us? Yes, I can. I I have to go back a little ways. I was a junior in YU Yeshiva University, in 1967. It was before finals and uh, members of Beitar and other groups started coming around and saying, we need volunteers. There's going to be a war in Israel. We need volunteers. So um, I said, you know, I grew up with all Menachem Begin used to come to visit. He came to my bar mitzvah. I have a picture with him at my bar mitzvah. And uh, to come to talk to my father, he he revered my father, Menachem Begin, And... Um, and so I grew up with all the stories of the Irgun, the Eitzel, the Lehi, and my grandfather's involvement in it. And now, when they said, this is a, this is a dangerous time, we need volunteers, I said, this is one I'm not going to miss. So I asked the guys in YU, what do I need to get to be able to go? They said, you have a passport? I said, sure, I have a passport. But I had used my passport a number of times before to come to Israel. So when I went back to Jersey City and I opened my passport, I found that it was overdue. And I knew that to get a new passport, you got to wait a few months. So I went right back to YU and I said to them, What do I do? And they said to me, uh, Well, usually it's a, but it's not a problem, they said. Why? Because if you go down to, um, you know, where they have all the ice skating rink and that in New York, in um, what's the name?
1: Center. Rockefeller Center. Center.
3: There's a place there. If you go there, and you really need a passport, it's until today. I've done it a few times. You pay a little extra, they wire to Washington and you can get a passport the same day. So they said to me, but don't wear a kippah, wear a baseball cap. And, um, and they said to me, and don't say you're going to Israel. Say you're going to England or whatever. Say your uncle's very sick in England. And it wasn't a lie really because my mother's from London. I had an uncle who was then really sick in England. <laughs> so I could really use that without lying. So I went down to uh, Rockefeller Center and this is June of 1967, I'm wearing my baseball cap, I'm online, it's a true story. And I get to the uh, Dalpec, to the counter, and the guy says to me, okay, what do you need? I said, my passport's expired, I need need a new passport. He said, okay, fill out the forms and uh, it'll take a couple of weeks, you'll get a new passport. I said, no, 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 I need it now, today. He said, why? I said, I have an uncle in England who's really sick and I have to go now. I may never see him again. So the guy looked at me and he said, where do you really want to go? I said, I got to go to England. My uncle's very sick and uh, I want—I need the passport today. He looks at me again and he says, okay, one more time. <laughs> where do you really want to go? So I figured, what am I fa- this guy knows what's going on. So I said, I want to go to Israel. There's going to be a war. And anybody who remembers, Everybody thought this was going to be another Holocaust, Shoah. Twelve uh, Egyptian armies going to throw Israel into the sea. People really thought we were at the end of the line. So, uh, so then I said to myself, I, I said to him, I want to volunteer. They need volunteers. So he said to me, get out of the line, please. Go into that office over there on the other side of the hall and wait for me. And I figured I blew it. Why did I have to say that to him? But I went into the office. I sat there and about a little while later, he walks in, he sits down. He said, "Okay, where do you want to go? I said, we've done this before. I said, we've talked about I want to go to Israel. I said, "I, I said, what? He said, well, we can't stop you from going to Israel. We can only advise not to travel to the Middle East. I said, then why did you ask me all these questions? He said, uh because I have a cousin in Tel Aviv. Can you bring him a package for me? <laughs> <laughs> and I almost fell on the floor. But it's true. And I brought the package for him.
0: Anyway, That's great.
3: I left That's America great. the night before the war. When we got to Paris, to Orly Airport, they told us the war broke out. And um, a number of people who were on the plane, there were a lot of volunteers. And mm-hmm. Rep. David Miller was also on the plane with me. We were together in YU. Um, but some of the people went back we decided we're going no matter what. We were in transit. So they took us to Greece. <clears throat> we spent a day and a half in Greece. And then in the middle of the war, with four Mirage jets, before they had the uh, American jets, the F jets, whatever they are, 15s, whatever, they, they had their planes that they used in 48 were from France, the Mirage jets. There's, they won the war for, with the Mirage jets. So the four Mirage. Uh, brought us into the airport. It was a total blackdown. Everything was black. They gave us um, um, flashlights to find our suitcases. And then they even said to us, if wow. you're Americans, you don't have to have your passport signed that you entered Israel during the war. So it won't make any problems. I said, no way. I said, this, I want to show to my grandchildren. <laughs> I said, stamp it twice. <laughs> so he did. Anyway, so... Um, we, we got our stuff. They took us to an old age home in Herzliya. And then we slept there that night. And the next day, they they just uh, filtered us out to all these different kibbutzim. Uh, I was wearing a black kippah, so they sent me to kibbutz Chofetz Chaim. A lot of my friends went to Yavne. They sent me to Chofetz Chaim. The mazel was that on Chofetz Chaim, there was a member of the Knesset, Kalman Kahana. He wrote a lot of books on Shemitah. But the Chazanish sent him to Chavetz Chaim, and uh, used to give shiurim every day in, in in the kibbutz to their volunteers on Ilchot Shmita, and um, and Kalman Kahana, he was a member of the Knesset of Poalei Agudat Yisrael. So on Thursday after they um, after they got Yerushalayim back, Shechirut Yerushalayim, he went to the Knesset and he took me to my grandfather. So I got to my grandfather on Thursday. It's still the, the war is going on, the six-day war. Uh, Friday, they came to take my grandfather to the Kotel before they opened it up to the public, right? So my grandfather says, mit You're going to come with me. I-, I couldn't believe this. We went through, uh, uh, this car took us with some people. I don't know who they were. They took us through the Mandelbaum Gate, Afterwards, they, they threw down the gate and everything else. And we came to this, we came into the old city. I didn't know where it was, into this little, little uh, gesale, this little, little street. And they got out there. And my grandfather knew where we were. You couldn't see the wall because uh, then still, it was all built up until the wall. There were houses all the way. It was only a week later that they knocked all the houses down so that the throngs of people that came could come on Shavuos to the kotel, but still, it was all built up. And we, 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 um, my grandfather got out and he wanted to make a kriya, he wanted to rent his garment, his, his frock, because he hadn't been to the kotel since 1948. And he tried, he couldn't do it. And I have a picture of me there with a little pocket knife that I had in my pocket. I took it out and I made a cut for him. And he rented his garment and he made a shekhiyonu. The two Shahionas that I remember that he used the Shema Furash first when I first came as a kid. And the second time, the week of the of the of the Six Day War, he and he was crying. He said, And he started running down this alleyway. And I don't know where he was going. He was 80 years old. I was 20 years old. And I tried to keep up with him. I ran after him. <clears throat> and at the end of the alleyway was the Kotel. And he started kissing the stones and he and his hat fell off and the soldiers ran over to help him up. They said, the tzaddik rabbi yalevin rebar, and they helped him get up and everything. And I'm looking around and what was so amazing to me was that when I was a kid in Jersey city, my father was the rub of the community. There were two pictures in our living room. One was of rabar Levine, my grandfather, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim. And one was not the Kotel, The Kaisel, because nobody said Kotel then. And nobody called it the Western Wall. They called it the Wailing Wall, where people went to cry. Kotel had ma'ot. Anyway, so we had these two pictures in our living room. And I remember as a kid, when when I had a test the next day in fourth or fifth grade, and I didn't know it or whatever, or I, I was worried about what was going to be the next day, in the middle of the night, I would light a little lamp in the, in the, in the dining room, the living room, wherever, and I would, I would talk to my grandfather and I would talk to the Kaisel. <laughs> and it always calmed me. It always helped me the next day. And all of a sudden, in June of 1967, I'm running after my grandfather and the two pictures of my youth, the Kotel and my grandfather, are standing in front of me, but they're not pictures. They're live. It's real. It's really the Kautel, the Kaisel, and it's really Rabai. And it was like um, it, it, it was like a dream. And we went from there to Rachel, and there were f- the soldiers there, the Milwdekim, these older guys were crying. I remember my grandfather said, No ba an mame ken vain Only by a real mother can you cry like that. And we were supposed to go to heaven, but they said it was too dangerous yet, uh, so we couldn't go to heaven. That was the Friday, and um, but was was most amazing. Also, was that um, even though my grandfather called Kachet Lahev and he was so excited and everything, and the whole period was a period of euphoria. Everybody thought Mashiach was coming, and um, even though it was my fa- my grandfather was very. Um, he didn't. He didn't go crazy. He didn't go nuts. He was. He was very, very mu'upak and sort of closed in himself. And I said to him, I asked him why. And he said to me a very interesting thing. He said, <clears throat> he said, you know, he said, when Avram fought the Malachim and he went to save Lot and he won. It says afterwards, what does the Pusik say? That uh, Hashem came to Avraham. <speaking in Hebrew> God came to Avram in a vision saying, Al tira Avram, Don't be afraid, Avram. Loch. Schocha he says to him, God says, after the um, uh, he defeats the kings and everything, God says to him, I am a shield for you. Loch. Uh, your reward is very great. So my grandfather said to me, Isn't it odd that after the battle, Hashem comes to Avram and says, Anochi I am a shield for you. That you say before the battle. You don't say it after you won a stunning victory that I am a shield for you. Before you go out to battle, when you're afraid, Hashem comes and Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. I will watch it. I'm your shield. And instead, after the great victory, and he destroys, he gets low back, everything. I am a shield for you. What does it mean? My grandfather said, Because he understood. He said that this is even though the victory is very great, the melachim, the kings, will never fargin, will never allow you to keep that victory. They'll still do whatever they can to take it away from you. And my grandfather said, "What? I'm everyone is is going, you know, so happy and everything." He said, "But I am worried." He said, "I don't think the battle is over." Is over. He said, "I don't think the battle is over. I don't think that the nations of the world." Are going to let us keep the kotel they're going to do everything they can to take it away from us and shmuel tamir who was later became the minister of justice who was a lawyer and a great a great lawyer from uh um and then became a member of the knesset he said at that time he said this old rav Rabbi Levin, this wise man understood what none of the politicians understood
1: was wow. brilliant was very prescient of him I know that Brody has a question, and then I have about a thousand follow-ups. <laughs> <laughs> <I> would <know.
2: laughs> be the longest interview ever. We go. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry that you spoke so No, well. we love it. I know. No, no, this million is things amazing. Says.
0: Should do a full day here. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the great uh, synagogues in the United States is obviously Boca Raton Synagogue. But I think if we could ever change the name, it would have to be Ach'tus Yisrael. In fact, whenever we Take trips to Israel, and we were in Machane Yehuda, and some people want to hop on the, you know, the tour bus and go back to the hotel. I say we got to walk back to Jerusalem. We got to walk back to the center of town. We pass by the shul. We show them. I say, what's the name of your shul? They tell me a Hebrew name. They say, I say, you know what it means? They say oh, we have no idea. I say, you know what Achdus Yisrael means? That's the greatest name in the world. There's nothing like it. And uh, I, I just want to, I it's just want to, my
3: grandfather represented, and I want to tell you something. Yeah, we mention this very often because. One of the things that I felt and noticed very much when I was in Boca Raton as a guest rabbi was the achdus that you have in your community. And I've said it many places. Maybe we should become adjoining sisters or brothers. How do you call so it? <laughs> you spread with Boca Raton.
1: We're
0: in. We're in. So today happens to be, they, they, it, it, it's, I guess at the president's house, you mentioned Ruby Rivlin before. They actually gave out the Jerusalem Unity Prize today. The Shaers, the right. Yifrah, the Frankels—they—they—they they, they gave out this year's uh, awards. And Simcha Sim Ras,
3: who wrote the biography, he is uh, becoming—he's getting the award too of Yakir Yerushalayim. Right. He's get he getting the award. I—I I spoke to him a few days ago, and and deserves it very well. He is the one that wrote the first book of Rabbi at Sadik in our time, right. which was at that time very the first of its kind. Since then, they've written all kinds of books like that. But when it first came out, right after Rebaria passed away, he passed away in 1969. It came out in the early 70s. It it, it was the Bar mitzvah present for many, many years all over. And um, and many of the people who remembered or had some incident or something with Rebaria Levine.
0: So I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, Remy I mean, Goldberg actually gave an incredibly uh impassioned drush at this past Shabbos about Actus. spoke about how you know in times of tragedy you see time and time again we can come together gave a number of examples and i'm wondering with all of your experience and everything that you're doing and you've done with gesher what are the the simple things that perhaps some of our our listeners could be doing a little bit better some things that maybe they're not considering when it comes to jews that are different than than us
1: How, how could they be like your grandfather more
0: there you go
3: i i i think he had such a love for every jew and, and, and I, it came through in the family very, very much. And I, and I think that, um, you know, you teach more by example than anything else. I, I remember as a kid, when I first came, I got on the bus. My grandfather would go visit somebody, so he took me with him on the bus. And, but we got on the bus. I, I'm a, I was then about 14 years old, something like that. He was in his 70s. And uh, I got up with him the bus, and there was only one place to sit down. And he was already an older man, in that. So, of course, you know, I walked with him. He sat down, and I stood, you know, holding the bar next to him. And and the next stop, a, another old man got on the bus. Now, what do people do when they see an old man standing on the bus? Most people today make believe that they're sleeping, or or <laughs> else they don't see him, or something like that. Uh, or else they tell somebody else to get up, or whatever. They say, "You should, young people, get up and give a place." my grandfather saw this old man standing. He didn't say to other people, you get up and you get up in your place. He got up right away from his place. I'll never forget this. And he ran over to the old man. He brought him to a seat and he put him down. And when the other people on the bus saw the way that this old man got up to give another old man a seat, they became very uncomfortable. And a whole bunch of young people got up to give him their seat. And I saw in his life, the way that they did it was not by giving Musser uh, telling people, you should do this, you should do this. It was by the way that he acted. In other words, uh, his, his actions spoke louder than anything else and influenced people more than anything else. And I think that if each, each and every person takes it upon themselves just to be a mensch, to greet another person, so the person yeah. maybe doesn't keep all the mitzvahs that I do, he doesn't know the thing, he dresses differently, or he doesn't do certain things that he should do. <clears throat> To be able to look away from those things and to see the good in every person, and to realize what people say, and it becomes trite because everybody says it, We're all one family, but we are one family, and and to be able to see the good things in other people, and um, and, and and to be a mensch, to treat other people like you know, it sounds like we grew up with this, and it sounds to me so crazy. That you have to tell other people to be a man, to treat other people. But that's what I saw with my grandfather. You know, I saw the love that he had for every Jew. I was a kid walking with him down the Midrachov, which was then Ben Yehuda Street. And it was a real street with cars going by. And I'm an American kid in the early 1960s, walking down Ben Yehuda Street on Shabbos with my grandfather. And he's wearing a shtrimel, because Yerushalmim, even the literature, they wore shtrimels on Shabbos. Shlameh Zalman, Yoshev, all of them. and. Um, I'm an American kid, and I'm dressed. I'm not dressed like Yerushalmi. I'm dressed like an American kid. And I'm walking down the Midruchah with him, and, and all of a sudden, a few cars go by. And, um, and, 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 and people are being... I look, I look to myself, I think to myself, here is the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, on the holiest day of the week, in the holiest city of the world. Right. And people are being... They're desecrating the Shabbos. Openly what is my grandfather going to say? He didn't yell Shabbos. He went to the side, he looked at me, he said, <laughs> So much saving of life. Because in order to save a life, you're allowed to desecrate the Shabbos. So if people are driving, they must be going to save a life because that they're allowed to do on Shabbos. Now, rabbi wasn't stupid. He was one of the cleverest people I ever met in my life but he didn't want to say something negative about another Jew. So I told the story over, and they told me that uh, that one of the Rebbes, the, the, um, that he lived in, uh, a guy told me he lived in Tel Aviv. And uh, uh, I forgot, one of the Rebbes came uh, to live in Tel Aviv, and then he went to Jerusalem afterwards, the Belzer, the Belzer Rebbe. He lived in Tel Aviv, he said he lived, this old guy told me, he lived next to me. He said when he would go out in Tel Aviv on Shabbos and cars would go by, he would stop and say, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. They're taking a young lady to the hospital to give birth. right? Now, he also knew there weren't so many births in his neighborhood on that Shabbos. But instead of saying something negative about another Jew, he would only find something positive to say. And, 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 and that was Rabaria. I mean, I saw the love that he had for. for for everyone. And I saw the love that people had for him. I mean, when I walked down in the street with him in Yerushalayim, it was religious, non-religious, Svartim, Ashkenazim, Temonim, any kind of people you could think of who would just come running over to him to shake his hand or to say Good Shabbos. And and it, and there was nothing political about this. This was very, very real. But it was the love that he had. And I said something this Shabbos in, in the shul uh, um i said i said uh, because amarta you know it says um, the two phrases amor amarta say and say again you know about the koanin the laws to give over to the children you know to tell the older people what they have to give over to the younger ones masha says how they act to be examples in gedolim for the younger people because they see what you do and, and I saw that, um, that, that Drebariya, in, in, in everything that he did, he was not nizhal, careful only about gedolin, He was about the little things. Like I once asked somebody in the Irgun, I said, what was unique about my grandfather? He came to you every Shabbos in the prison to daven with you. I said, other rabbis came also. Why was, so, why was there so much love for him? I said, you know know what was interesting about your grandfather, he told me? He said, all the rabbis that came to visit the prisoners there, when they left the prison, that was the end of their visit. But your grandfather, when he left the prison, he only began his visit. Because then he went to all the families to see, to give regards, to see if they need anything or whatever. When he left, it wasn't the end of his visit. And I thought that was so apt because... The chassam surfer says, what is lahazir gedolim ala ketanim is that if you go to do a big mitzvah, you have to bury somebody who was killed, chassar shalom, who died, and there's nobody to do it or whatever. After you do the big mitzvah, lahazir gedolim, don't think you finished the mitzvah, ketanim. Make sure afterwards that you care for the orphans, for the widow, and the other people as well. You didn't finish the mitzvah because you made a funeral for that guy. You have to also continue it with those who come afterwards. And my grandfather always was always continuing. He was going on. It wasn't just doing the mitzvah himself. It was the, the repercussions and what would come afterwards. And he was a genius in this. He was he's ingenious in being able to see, walk in the streets of Jerusalem and see where somebody needed help, what he could do if it was the lepers, if it was the, the, those in prison, a family with fights between the husband and the wife, or whatever. He had such a keen eye and he knew how to do it. You know, a lot of people give musr, they tell you what to do, but you can also do terrible things when, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Rabari also, the way that he did it was just, he was brilliant. He was a master.
1: So, my favorite uh, Rabari story, if, if I'm allowed to have one, I think I heard from you in that remarkable shul. You give a tour to one of our schools, that the eighth graders before Corona used to come every year. So could you share the story when the young man in Nachlaot who was avoiding Revarie? Revarie wanted to know why this young man was avoiding him?
3: Yeah, actually, I met the guy. I met him when he was an old man. He passed away since then. And this story has different versions. And and the versions fit all together. But I heard from this old man. He told me he said, um, he said that, that he said uh, I was walking in the street. He showed me even where. But he said, I was walking the street. He said, I was a young man. And he wasn't, he wasn't a kid. I think he was maybe in the army or something, but he took off his kippah And I guess it was a time of rebelling or whatever. He said, and I'm walking down the street and I see from a distance, I see your grandfather Rabaya the Tzaddik. He says to me, Rabbaya Haya sheli uba bar mitzvah sheli. was at my bris and at my bar mitzvah. He said, and I'm without a kippah he said, so I tried to run out the side alleyway so that I wouldn't encounter him. He said, but I didn't make it in time. He said, and your grandfather stopped me and he took my hand. He said, Shalom Aleichem, how he were doing everything. And he said, and he said to me, did I ever do anything to hurt you? I said, Rebalia, you never did anything to hurt anybody. Why would you think that? He said, because I noticed as I was walking towards you, you were running away from me. So, maybe once I said something to you I shouldn't have said or whatever, and I apologized. And the guy said to me, I could lie to anybody, but not to Rebaya. So I said, No, Rebaya. I just didn't want you to see me without a kippah on my head. So he said, Your grandfather took my hand into his, as he did, and he said, I'm a very, very short shoe. I can't see what you have in the top of your head, but I see your heart. And that's what Rebaya saw. We saw the heart of people. And the guy told me, and this is important because this they never tell, the guy said to me, because of what your grandfather did, I put the kippah back on my head. Everybody was saying to me, you know, you're rebelling against your family and everything else. Rabbi didn't do that. Rabbi didn't see that. Rabbi said to me, I see your heart. And the words of Rabbi was ultimately what caused me to put my kippah back on my head.
1: Wow. Revenge really, so That to time. me was
3: a, a tremendous lesson because it's a lesson of, you know, you want to give Musa, you have to know how to give Musa. And I had a few stories of my own that happened to me teaching Gemara that were influenced by this story in a way. I, I don't know if we have time for it. Yeah, please go. Stories that are amazing. They've been written up. And uh, one of the great authors in, in Israel, Chaim Be'er, said to me, Benji, Two stories that have become classics. After I graduated YU in 68, so my parents were thinking already, time to go back to Eretz Yisrael. So we had a year where I finished YU. I started my master's in Jersey City uh, in English literature. And um, my father would learn with me in the afternoons. In the morning, I had free time. So my father said, the yeshiva... It's the high school, like a junior high, is looking for a Rebbe. So go there, you'll get the job, and uh, you'll have a year experience of teaching Gemara. So I said to my father, how do you know that I'll get the job? I never taught in front of a class before. Why are you so certain, uh, why are you so certain that I'll get the job? My father said, I know you'll get the job. So I said, well, you're a novi." So my father said, I said, how do you know I'll get the job? He said, they don't have anybody else. They're looking all around. Whoever will come will get the job. So that was a big compliment for me that, <laughs> that I would get the job because they didn't have anybody else. But Lamai said that's what happened. I went, and because they didn't have anybody else, they made me the Rebbe. So it's in 1960, I graduated, it's September 1968. I come to a classroom in Yeshiva of Hudson County for the first time with a Gemara on my hand in the same class that I learned in the eighth grade. I could even see my seat where I sat. And I walk into the class, 30 kids, and as I walk into the classroom, a kid throws a paper plane across my desk. So everybody looks, because this is the first encounter with a new Rebbe. So uh, the truth is, I didn't know what to do, but I really feel sometimes I have Siata deshmai my grandfather's over there, he's watching over me. So I put my Gemara down, I didn't say a word, I went over to the kid, I grabbed him by the collar, I brought him to the front of the class, everybody was silent. And I said to him, if you ever make a plane like this in my class again, I'm gonna throw you out for the entire year. And he got scared. I said, because if you make a plane in my class, you're gonna make it right. And (laughs) And I made a paper plane and I know how to make planes. And I threw it across the room and everybody went, wow. And I said to him, I don't care what you do in my class. If you do, you're going to do it well. Now, I didn't see that kid for 35, 40 years. I'm in New York City. A friend of mine whose father was a member of my father's school is in the hospital. And he tells me about, it. he says, you know, my father would love to see you. Let's go visit him. I went with him to pay a, a call in the hospital. When we're coming out of his father's room in the big hall in the hospital in Manhattan, there's a group of doctors standing in the corner, and one very marshim-looking doctor in the middle, and he's talking. They're all around him, and I look at this guy, and he looks very, very familiar. So I say to the guy I'm with, "Who's that guy?" He said, "Him, head of the department. You never can. You want an appointment with him? You wait two years." So said, "What's his name?" He tells me the name. I said, "Oh my God, that's the kid who threw the plane." So I look at him, and then he looks at me, he sees me looking and then i see he's looking at this and then he's he yells across the whole hospital floor is that you i said i think so i think it's me <laughs> so he apologizes to all the doctors and he runs across he gives me a hug and he says to me do you have 10 minutes to have do you have 15 minutes to have a cup of coffee with me in the cafeteria and i'm thinking to get to him you gotta wait two years and he wants 10 minutes 10 minutes, 15 minutes of my time. So I said, okay, even 10. (laughs) We go downstairs to the cafeteria, start talking. And in the middle, he says to me, do you remember the story with the plane that I flew across your desk the first day of school? I said, do I remember? I tell it over all the time. He said, you don't know the story. I said, I tell it over all the time. You don't know the story. I said, why? He said, I went to public school. I want to go to public high school too. Uh, My father became Frum, and he decided his son's going to go to a Jewish day school. I didn't want to go, but he forced me. So I went the first day. All my friends were in public school, and I said, I'm going to get kicked out. I'm going to do something that's going to get me kicked out. And then what can my father do? I'll go back to public school. He said, that's why I flew flew the plane. He said, but it didn't turn out the way I thought. (laughs) And I'll tell you something. He put his arm around me. He said, Rebbe. he said, I've learned, by studied by some of the greatest doctors in the world. But the greatest lesson I ever learned was that first day in school. Wow. Since then, whatever I do, I do it the best I can. One <laughs> more story. <laughs> one more story. There was a kid who came into to me the first day. It was a wonderful year. It gave me so much. Kid comes over to me and says, I, uh, Reby, I have one request. I said, one request for today, the first day, or for the whole year? He said, for the whole year one request for the whole year. This is going to be easy. I said, what's your request? He said, I, I promised my mother that once this year, I'll get 100 in a Gomorrah test. So I'm thinking, even if he doesn't understand or whatever it is, we'll help him. We'll do it, whatever. I said to him, a lie on me. I take it on me. Once this year, no matter what, you will get 100 on a Gomorrah test. And I had no idea to whom I was talking. He's a wonderful boy. When he came to Gomorrah, cement. Addict. You couldn't penetrate anything. We learned shoshana Anagach So the first test, he got like a, a 20. And then the next test, the 10. Uh, so then I stopped giving marks because I didn't want him to meet and and not to want to learn anymore. I told him marks is not important. You just do the best you can. But it didn't help. So what we did was we, uh, we, we made comics. And then a kid brought in a, a movie thing. We made a movie in the class. And then we did everything we could. Nothing helped. Anyway, so we, um, we went through the year. The last week of school, he comes over to me says, Rebbe, it was a great year, but I must say, you never kept your promise to me. And I said, oh, you You know, if a kid leaves your class for his whole life, he's going to remember the Rebbe didn't keep his promise. But I had to think quick. So I said to him, but why are you asking me that now? We still have a week left that you asked the Rebbe on the last day. I know we still have a week left. Don't worry about it. I went home and I said, what am I going to do now? So two days later, I gave him a test for a thousand points in Gomorrah and he got (laughs) a hundred. I said to him, Dale Balak, if you tell your mother that that test was for a thousand points, anyway. So uh, I didn't see him for years, and the chances of meeting him again on the subway in New York, m- millions of people, whatever. I'm um, in New York. I used to travel a lot as a scholar and resident. I'm in in the subway, the A train, whatever. Oh no, the Seventh Avenue train, and I'm it's packed with people. In the corner of my eye, I see at the end the guy sitting there, and it looks just like this guy. We'll call him Five, whatever. And I said, that's Fivel. But I keep looking at him and I see he's holding a Schottenstein. He's learning Dafyomi. So I said, even if it's Five, it's not Five. Maybe it's <laughs> his brother, twin brother, who likes to learn. It can't be him. Anyway, I keep looking at him, staring at him. And then he looks at me and he sees me staring. And then his eyes brighten up and everything. And he starts to smile. We smile at each other. He comes over to me, gives me a hug. We talk. We get out of 42nd Street. We walk up the stairs. And we talk, and he's doing very well and everything. Oh, he shows me the Gemara, the shine. He said, would you believe? I said, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> and we laughed. Anyway, I said to him, how's your mother? He said, my mother passed away a few years ago. I said, she really loved you, and she cared about you. He said, I know. Anyway, we part on 42nd Street, and he goes one way, I go the other. And a few seconds later, he yells back to me in the middle of Times Square in the street. He yells back to me, hey, Rebbe. I forgot to tell you, my mother passed away, and she never knew the test was for a 1000 oh, great. Great. 35, 40 years ago. That's so, great. you know, I learned from my grandfather, these are the important things. You know, also, a sense of humor certainly helps in marriage, in relationships, in teaching, in everything
1: i, I want to first of all this could be our longest interview yet and and i'm sorry we're only getting no we're only getting getting started, don't be sorry it's the opposite <laughs> we could talk for hours and hours and hours but we don't want to keep you too long i want to ask you one one more question you know you mentioned that you, you went trying to take notes about a tzaddik and then you realized that revari levin on the one hand was the tzaddik of yerushalayim and and continues to be that inspiration but he was very normal that was the word you used Raval yashev was the girl ador and the posek ador but when you knew him and he was, you know, coming back from the base, then he was, so to say, normal. First of all, I wonder whether you can comment, did you have a relationship with your cousin, Rebetzin kanievsky You know, our image of Rebetzin kanievsky did, did she talk to you? Did you have a relationship with her? Was there a connection? Did you spend any time? But if you could come back to and maybe leave us with this notion of what normalcy is. You were in the heart of Yerushalayim, Gedola Yisrael, you saw the most righteous men and women, and it seems that we've maybe lost our way a little bit of the normalcy, a Yiddishkeit and a Frumkeit a Torah, which is supposed to inspire and enrich a normalcy, not make us abandon it. So if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you meant, first of all, whether you had a relationship with, with your cousin, Rebetzin Kanievsky, and uh, what you mean by normal.
3: With, with, with Batsheva, with uh, Rebetzin Kanievsky, I didn't have a close relationship. First of all, because... Um, when I was in Yerushalayim, I lived in Yerushalayim with them. I didn't, uh, they were there in Bnei Brak, but um but I visited them, you know, like I visited them a number of times whatever. And whatever I did, it was always very nice and very, very warm. And um, uh, again, I was coming as a first cousin. So the relationship was different. I mean, with revel Yoshev, when you ask about talking and everything, revel Yoshev was not a big talker. Now, when you came to him, like, I, I never left Rav where he didn't say to me, Timsoh Abba, b'leivo nefesh, b'leivo nefesh. Rav Shlemizaman, my father, his kids, used to go to watch, watch through the keyhole, watch Rav Kook sitting and learning. And they told me, my father and Rav the few minutes they saw the kedusha on Rav Kook's face, made them want to run back to the Gemaras, to become Tamidichachamim in their own right. But, um, but Rav Shlemizaman was very warm, like my father. You know, when you came to him to ask a Shailor a question, it wasn't in and out. He would just ask you where you're from. He would talk to you or whatever. Rav was very, very different. Um, You know, it's to give you a rough idea, it's not the same thing. Like you would say, Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital in the Gush. You know, I learned by Rav Lichtenstein and I was close to Rav Amital. They were very different kind of, uh, uh, of personalities. But each was a godel in their own right, and they were great people in their own right. And um, Ravelyosha was not a small talk person. And uh, so, if I walked with him in the street and that, it wasn't like we were having this running conversation all the time. But like my aunt would say to him, Yosef read "Red mitem, sits mitem." She she would say to him, to Ravelyosha, "To sit with me." She would say, "Sit with him, talk to him." He's your nephew from America. Go sit with him, talk to him. And he listened to her. Whatever she said was, you know, holy, yeah. She, he didn't mess around and she told him what to do. And, um, and so he would sit with me and talk to me, and he would sing Zmiras on Shabbos. And I found him very, very, you know, I found him normal in so many things, like uh, when my father was very sick, he was in Laniado. So I went to, to ask him uh, uh, something, and he said to me, dein tata. I said, he's in Laniado. And he said, and how is it? I said, they have very good from doctors. So he said to me, from doctors is not what's important now. What's important now is a good doctor. It doesn't have to be from, it doesn't have to be Jewish. You have to get the best doctor that you can. That's what you need at the moment. When, when somebody had taken some things from my grandfather's room and sold them, I put them up for auction. So uh, one of my uncles said, we have to go to the basement. And, and I was a witness to this, even though I've never told this over to anyone. And I don't like to make these things public. But Reverend Yoshev said, no, not to go to a basted." So he said, no. He said, no, get a lawyer. <laughs> so my uncle said, get a lawyer? Not to go to a basted." So my uncle said, yeah, a, a, a basted he won't be afraid of. A lawyer he'll be afraid of. He was very, very... He was very. I, I, I'm afraid of telling all these stories because people will say, "Oh, I said it, Ravelyushman." You got to be very careful with these stories. But um, um, I told over a story. I got into a lot of trouble from because there was a, con, a convention of rabbis many years ago, and I told over a story not that I heard, but that I saw. I got smicha from Ravuntaman. He came from England, uh, and he became the rabbi of Tel Aviv. And uh, he came from uh, the same place that the Beatles came from. He was in England, right? And, um, and uh, he was the Rav in Tel Aviv, and then he became the chief rabbi. And he wore a big cylinder, like a, a Lincoln stovepipe hat, whatever. And he wore it. And, and, and we were once standing in front of uh, hekel Shlomo. That's where the offices used to be. And, um, uh, and a number of old rabbanim and some students. And a tourist went by, a woman. And somebody said to her, that's the chief rabbi of Israel. So in front of everybody, she walked over to him, she put out a hand, and she said, shalom. And I remember the older rabbis, like you see in the movies, these people going,
2: <laughs>
3: And Rav Untima shook her hand. He asked her where she's from, and and he was very nice to her. And she went away, like, with a smile. And then he turned to us, and he said, al-tachshavu, sh'ani mekel b'hilchoys negia." And he pushed machmir, covered You know, like um, I'm I'm not easy on the laws of Nagir. He didn't touch women's hands, but he was very machmir. He said, not to embarrass, not to not to embarrass another person." And I told this story because I thought it showed a man who didn't give his hand to women or anything else, but at the same time, when he saw this woman came, she didn't know he didn't he didn't want to be mafasa her. He didn't want to embarrass her. And that's what she remembered her whole life. She saw the chief rabbi and he yelled at her or whatever and that. And he was very nice to her. And he, and he was, that's the way a Jew has to act. In other words, and, and you don't learn from that that everybody should go around shaking women's hands. What it means is that there are times where Chaim Sonnenfeld went to a bris by Svardim. And, and I checked out this story because it made a big impression on me. And he was eating, they, at the suda of the bris, he was eating the meat. And somebody said, you know, and the the Sfardim, Ashkenazim, uh, went according to, well, we didn't go according to the Beis Yosef. So they didn't eat the meat of the shechting of the Sfardim, whatever. And Remchaim Zonnefeld, who was a kanoi, he was a zealot, and he was sitting at the bris and he was eating the meat of the Beis Yosef. So somebody said to him, why were you doing that? You fight the battles of Frumkeit and everything. He said, I thought to myself, what's the right thing to do? Is the right thing not to eat the meat and embarrass this person in the middle of a Suddhist mitzvah or to eat it and not to embarrass him? And I realized that the most important thing was not to embarrass him. You know, it wasn't just saying to be more from more from. Anybody can say usr, usr, usr. You don't have to learn. You don't have to know anything to say it's usr. To say mutter, you have to know how to learn. And that was the greatness of these people.
1: Wow. Wow. That's the normalcy that we need. Revenge, you're very normal. You're normal, you're inspiring, we can go on and on, so we're going to have to bring you back for part two and part three. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in Yerushalayim. you got to quit when you're ahead. (laughs) Somebody
3: told me, quit when you're ahead.
1: You're you're always ahead. But as we're we're going to celebrate Yom Yerushalayim, the miraculous gift of the reunification of the eternal United Capital of the Jewish people, that your family is uh, forever so much a part of and a symbol of, and you continue in that legacy. We give you bracha. You should have gezunt and nachas from your family, and continue Amazing. to be that light, that inspiration. Thank you for hosting our family, and we look forward to your coming back and more. We look forward to joining you in Jerusalem. Thank you right. so, Please, so so very any, much. Any
3: anytime, anytime. You are my family. You're always welcome anytime.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All the brachas. Thank. Wow, that was fantastic. That was unbelievable. <laughs> what stories. What a conversation! That's probably wow. our longest interview, and yet it felt like it was ten minutes long, and we could have gone on three hours more. So much more wow. to talk about. Wealth
0: of knowledge. It's a good thing we've got some good rays to keep us hydrated. You know,
1: good rays, <laughs> vitamin D, keep us uh, healthy and well. The vitamin D that we need. Which story? What insight? What message of Revenge struck you the most? What's your takeaway tonight?
0: Rabbi Brody, do you start off with? Well, i think after we started the show tonight talking about the tragedy in israel and reading all the uh the uh stories about achdut Achdus, unity and how how we can come together i think a lot of people like to think that there are just many many different excuses of why it can't happen and this is just another example of when it does it, there's no reason to wait for another tragedy just to demonstrate that we can't come together Rav benji is the uh the epitome of Achdus. we can see it in everything that he does and there's no more excuses
1: yeah i think
2: for me it wasn't once any one particular story um Revaria levine has always been sort of a hero a mentor someone i've always looked up to and said i want to be like that and i want to emulate that and whenever you hear someone tell these stories there are always little tidbits throughout that you can glean and say that i'm gonna i'm gonna do that a little bit better i'm gonna be a little bit more like that so when you hear about these godolan and when you're reminded that they're they're real people And that there are parts to them that we can emulate, even the way he described the way that Rivari used to wake him up in the morning in such a sensitive way to not make him feel guilty about being a little bit late. Those are things that we could do. We could all be a little bit more sensitive. We could all be a little bit more thoughtful. It's real. And that really resonated with me.
1: For me, too, the story that blew me away, it just painted a portrait for me. The imagery just just jumped out was that his father and Rishlam zaman looking through the keyhole to watch Rav Kook learning, like like spying, peeking in on Rav Kook learning, and the Kedusha that emanated the holiness from his learning just made them desperately want to get back to a Gemara and learn themselves. Right. I love that. I love that image of the holiness that's just kind of... Just coming out of Rav Cook, and they're they're peeking. He's not. Rav Cook's not doing it because he knows anyone is watching. That's that's authentically, genuinely who he is. They're watching it, and the reaction is not. Let's take a picture and put it on the internet. The reaction is, I want to go learn. I want to go be like that. He's a genuine person. Rav Levine is he's the real deal. When I promoted online that we were having him, somebody wrote they took a walking tour, which everyone has to take a walking tour with him of Nakhlot, where his grandfather Rav Yehuda lives. He'll show you everything, the great people and the great uh, places. So he said they were walking with Ravai Levin, and he said hello to every person. He knew their name. Hello, how are you? How is such and such? He just he he exudes what his grandfather was, Ravai Levin. Just avas Yisrael, loving all Jews, just loving all Jews. His message is is perfect. We need it, and uh, it was really a great honor and a great privilege to be able to have him. The hour is already late. That was such a long interview, and as always. I don't know. There's so many things to talk about. We have a list of things we want to get to, and somehow we never get to it, but we do want to get to thanking our sponsor again. Thank you to the Glass family of Neck. Good raise G-O-O-D.
0: Originally of Elizabeth.
1: Elizabeth, ah com g o o d r a z g-o-o-d-r-a-z.com but pronounced good raise vitamin D3 supplement put a drop you won't even notice you won't even taste it but you will feel better and uh, you'll be healthier so we thank them and as always we ask you to rate and review let's get the mess let's get rid of Benji's message far and wide the best way to get rid of Benji's message far and wide is for it to climb the charts people discover it when they're looking for it so rate and review for a moment subscribe on YouTube and until next time Stay happy, stay healthy.
0: Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.